the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bedsheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dyson House podcast, a place to discuss the past, present and future of our international world and how to break into the fields that will change it. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Dragovich. Dennis wears many hats, having worked as a civil engineer, a research assistant to the US National Security Advisor, an aid worker and country director in places like East Timor, South Sudan and Iraq. He completed a doctorate in political theology, studying the role of religion in rebuilding countries after war. He consulted the UN, among many other organizations, and I could go on and on, but most recently he's become an author of the book, No Dancing, No Dancing, Inside the Global Humanitarian Crisis, of which we'll touch on later. In this interview, we just scraped the surface of what this man's achieved, focusing on his enormous experience with humanitarian crises. He has some incredible stories from war zones to refugee camps, and he has really great tips for those looking into humanitarian aid. I had such a great time with this one, so please enjoy So You Want to Be a Humanitarian Aid Worker with Dennis Dragovich. Thank you so much for joining us on the Dyson House podcast today, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be able to host you. Thank you. Thank you. Love to be here. Look, it seems almost impossible to condense your career down into a 20 or 30 minute episode, so I'm not even going to attempt that. But correct me if you disagree, but I think your career has largely been defined by your commitment to humanitarian causes. In fact, you recently wrote a book on it, and we can talk about that later. But today I wanted to get into the topic of humanitarianism, why we as a nation or as, as the world should help others, and why we're, what we're currently doing and how we can do it better. So I'm going to start with why. Why does someone give up their own personal comfort and security to go to somewhere like East Timor in 1999 or any other war zone or post-war zone for that matter? Well, I was um, initially an engineer. I was working at Sing- in Singapore at the time rebuilding uh, old buildings and building uh, new tunnels. And although I was enjoying that whole process of building something from scratch, there was a degree of not f- being fulfilled. Uh, and I was looking at doing something more for the community, but also for myself. And so I started to ask around about uh, getting into the aid business and um, people told me about it. I learned more about it. And and then I decided, well, I thought, you know, this sounds like a, a really fulfilling opportunity to uh, meet other cultures, engage with different people, but also to give something back. Why do you think that's important? Well, it's important from a cross-cultural perspective. We can so often be isolated in our lives here in Australia and not fully grasp the situation that others live in. So from a personal perspective, I I learned a lot, I grew a lot, and the challenges that I faced are challenges that very few people, I think, living here in Australia would experience, challenges of living in a war zone, of of being isolated uh, without communication or without security, living in places that didn't have regular supply of food, working in conditions where you didn't have an air conditioner, you didn't have electricity or running water, all of these things can build character from an individual perspective but also from a community's perspective I think it's important that Australians and as, as, as many as possible young or old have a better understanding of other communities and other cultures their values their beliefs their priorities because these are the challenges that we face in the, in the world today is just a, a real lack of understanding of 
why other people believe what they believe, why other people are living the way they live. And it's these differences that then lead to conflict. So whereas often you would have academics or military personnel have a perspective on how to deal with the conflict, it's the aid workers or those or the anthropologists amongst the academics who understand the root causes of these conflicts and can better help to minimise, mitigate or, or prevent them from, from the beginning. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible experience, but do you, do you think that aid work is for everybody? No, certainly not. Uh, I remember one instance, uh, I was in South Sudan uh, at the time, it was still part of Sudan, it was in conflict, and I was in a town called Wow that was surrounded by the government uh, forces, uh, the the opposition forces, but the town was controlled by the government, and they had a tribe, the government had a tribe that used to resupply the town twice a year, and in the thousands they would ride on horseback accompanying a train, that would then bring supplies in, and and I was there at one time when the, the these uh, these tribe called the Mordahalin would come in, and and they would ride in their wide jellabiers, the, the wide cloaks, the the, the Arab um, garb, and with one or two machine guns in their hands as they're riding on horseback, and and um, coming back from one of their Uh, raids and neighbouring villages, they surrounded the compound that I was in uh, together with a few other international expatriates and they just started shooting into the air, riding around and and shooting into the compound's walls and we just lay low and and took it in our stride uh, because we saw that there wasn't any intent to harm us, it was more to scare us. Now one of the um, ICRC, um, the Red Cross delegates uh, it was her first time there in such a situation and um, she couldn't cope and she was evacuated the next day and never came back to aid work again it really depends on the individuals um, whatever it is however our wires are, are joined together in our brains and what makes us work but for some people dealing with the hardship dealing with the threats um, is is okay same situation in Iraq for whatever reason I never felt that my life would be lost, um, although obviously the circumstance was such that if you took a rational mind to it, you'd say it would be, it could be, sorry. Um, so it just, some people are made for it, some people aren't. And did you know what you were getting yourself in for when you when you decided that you wanted to get into aid work? No, and I don't think many people do. Uh, so it really depends on what you see um, what you see in the books that you read and, and, and the shows that you watch and things like that. So my first posting was East Timor. I think I arrived there in May 2000, which would have been several months after um, the conflict. And so at that time, that my first experience, there wasn't a lot of insecurity. It was more hardship and isolation. That was the challenge. But then I chose from that posting to go into a war zone. Uh, and that was by choice, while other people cho- choose to go to a, a, a more development-focused location. And so it really depends in what you want to do in the direction that you take. And what were some of the projects that you were in charge of? Like when you went to a war zone, for example, what was the kind of work that you would be doing? So it really depended. It depends on the circumstances. I initially started off as a shelter engineer, uh, my background being engineering, and that meant that I was helping to distribute emergency shelters uh, to communities whose homes had been destroyed by the conflict. 
but over time then my career went more into management and so when I was in Sudan I was responsible for some field offices and so that meant supervising a more diverse group of activities alongside having still my own technical expertise that I would be able to contribute and so the circumstances would dictate what we would do and what I mean by that is in Sudan for example there was a lot of recovery work after a, a late 90s famine and conflict had displaced a lot of people. But then while I was there at the same time, the front lines moved and that created further displacement. And so what was recovery work turned out then in a different location to be a direct emergency humanitarian assistance. And, and to give you an example of what that looks like, when, when the front lines moved, one of the um, towns that I was responsible for were overrun and so I, I went back to our main office in Khartoum. My country director uh, offered me uh, to pick a team, take a car. I put 44-gallon drum of fuel on the back, uh, $20,000 in cash in, in a little lockbox and we drove for three days through Sudan, uh, which is the largest country in Africa. And we got lost. Uh, it, it was off-road driving in, in some circumstances. We were welcomed by the governor of uh, one of the states as we drove through and uh, eventually came to the place where the displaced people from the town where I was responsible for that had been overrun had come seeking safety. And so my job was then to set up a camp for them and that meant from scratch, uh, working with the local authorities and a few of the other uh, representatives of aid agencies to identify a location for the camp and, and work from you know, from that point, digging latrines, paying people to build uh, shelters, layout, everything. And was there ever a moment in your whole career that you thought, I can't do this anymore or I just need to stop or how did you, how did you get out of aid work? Yeah, certainly there's a point, it was in 2008 and, and nine. I was the country director in Iraq for one of the largest aid programs there at the time. We were running, it was about 100 million US annual turnover for the community development program and we had um, a microfinance program with about 18,000 clients. And so it was a big operation and at the same time the direction I was taking it was not welcomed by the US government and there were some clashes. I became effectively a persona non grata. I was not welcomed at meetings. I was not included in considering you know, future directions and I just became uh, frustrated, cynical with the whole system. The, the system that was being driven in, uh, by the US in Iraq was more about um, spending money rather than looking at how it was spent and what the results and outcomes were. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. And that was part of the problem because a lot of the decision makers who were driving this had never left the, the green zone or the compounds in, in the embassy while I was living out in the red zone. And so I just said I had enough, left, and did a little bit of consulting for the UN before starting a PhD on something that I thought was fundamentally flawed in our Western aid system, and that is that we just 
tend to ignore the role of religion and religious leaders in in the aid and and the way that we deliver the aid in countries, considering that it's one of the most important thing for people in their lives. It shapes the way they live. It dictates the way when they wake up, when they go to sleep, what they eat. And we ignore it largely because we are coming from a Western secular perspective where there's separation of church and state. And, and, and I think that's the detriment of our aid. Right, so your frustrations were more bureaucratic, I guess. They weren't, they weren't necessarily living conditions or safety matters or anything like that. No, I, I actually enjoyed all of that. I, I loved living in um, sparse conditions. I enjoyed, somehow, I enjoyed the hardship of it all. I, I loved it. What frustrated me was the bureaucracy. That last posting I had, I had to go through four audits from the US government, various orders that were required. And I can hand on heart say I probably met less than half a dozen beneficiaries of the aid that we gave in a year. And that just tells you where the priority lay uh, for the donors. And on a, on a lighter note, there must have been some pretty surreal moments in your career, like times you sort of had just had to sit back and take everything in. Can you talk about those and some maybe some of the things that, that did work out despite the bureaucracy? Oh, it's it's hard to say, you know, what, what are those surreal moments because there, there are sometimes situations that you experience and you live in the moment but then um, get overwhelmed with uh, other obligations and, and then move on. I mean, I, I just, you know, snippets of memories that I recall, for example, in East Timor, I would just drive around the country distributing the shelter, doing the work that we were doing and it was just such a beautiful moment to engage in a community i'll give you one example where we engaged with a community where people were learning on how we would be distributing the the shelter materials not everyone would get one basically because not everyone well not we couldn't afford to give one to everyone and so there was a criteria and one gentleman he stood up and he had his um, spiel and he was angry and he was um, one had a mouthful to say and people were hushing him and telling him to sit down and then he just turned around and he said hang on isn't this a democracy isn't this the right that we've fought for for me to have to say what I want to say, and I I, I just loved that. I loved that, you know, that uh, that he would have that, and that that just stayed in my mind. In Sudan, I guess one of the most surreal moments was being in Wow during 9/11, during um, September 11th, 2001, when the when the towers were hit. Now, if you recall, Sudan was and continues to be sort of a pariah state. Bill Clinton bombed Al Shifa factory in 1998 for reasons the belief that they had chemical were producing chemical weapons there was a period of Osama bin Laden's career that he was had um, sanctuary in Sudan and so there was this real fear as soon as the towers went down that it wouldn't be Afghanistan that would be hit it would be Sudan that was going to be hit there's an uncertainty and many people probably don't know that at that time I was in Sudan and on that day, actually, I was um, in Wow and I stepped outside and the neighbour of my house um, was handing out sweets, celebrating the event. Uh, and that struck me. Uh, this might be a good segue to talk about your book a little bit. Maybe I'll just get you to introduce your book and maybe talk about the, the major issues we're facing currently in 2018 as opposed to back when you were in, heavily involved in aid work. Yeah, so I mentioned that I... Went and did a PhD, but just before that, I had some time on my hands and feeling frustrated and cynical of 
the aid industry, I thought, well, why don't I go back to some of these places where I used to work to see what happened to the people and the and the projects, catch up with some friends and just have a have a chat and without being encumbered with all the bureaucracy and time constraints. So I went to Iraq twice on my own as a, as a tourist. I went to East Timor and I went to South Sudan. And, and so that was in total probably a month of just meeting with village chiefs, former colleagues, hospital administrators. I met with an Ayatollah, with governors, and I was asking them what they thought of us, what they thought of the work that we did. How did they see us? Because it was important to me to understand not only whether a project is effective, but how the people perceive what we did. Because I'll give you an example. With the shelter distribution project in East Timor, one of the villages that we had to, were assigned to service and provide these materials was very isolated. We had four-wheel drive trucks, but the four-wheel drive trucks couldn't access it. It was just too far high up in the mountains and the roads were so bad. So we talked to the U.S. Marines and they allocated some, I think they called baby Chinooks, to, to the, the job. So they basically helicoptered the materials from uh, our warehouse up to the mountains. And so I went early, you know, four in the morning, one morning, and parked a car at the village, and the car was basically the, the, the landing zone for the helicopter for them to identify where we were, where we were at. And I was just wondering then, and, and this was one of the questions I asked when I went back, was... You know, it's not as if the village and, and the people there themselves had never brought heavy materials up. The way they did it was by donkey. And I was just wondering whether they thought, why on earth are these white people using helicopters to deliver materials when we could have done it ourselves with donkeys? Or whether they were just grateful for what we had done and you know, the thought hadn't crossed them, their mind. Uh, yeah, th these are the sorts of things that... Uh, another example was I was once lucky to have a mock wedding done by a tribe in Darfur. They went through a tremendous effort to present that tradition to me. And so tens of people were dancing and dressed up and they did everything just for my visit. And I was, you know, thought that crossed my mind. I never asked them that because I didn't return to Darfur. But I, at that time I was wondering, you know, are they doing this on a transactional basis, we'll show you this, you give us that? Or is it just a pride in their culture? And, and, and these are important questions because when we do aid, what we so often do is what's called best practice. And so the idea is what works in Bolivia sort of will work in Botswana. And I'm not a big fan of that. Nevertheless, that's how the aid industry is structured. And so what happens is that you've got these cook cookie-cutter approaches that people do and um, that they're delivered and sometimes the, the nuances of the locality and the people and the culture and their faith and their language aren't taken into consideration. And that's why I was interested to see what people thought about what we were doing. And that's, that was the genesis of my book. And so what my book does is it follows my journey back to Iraq, South Sudan and East Timor to see what happened to the people in the projects. So, so what is the situation in those in those places right now is it has it helped the aid that's been there and also what are the what are the other major issues that we're facing today as the human race in 2018 so 
I did the aid work um, part of my career in the first decade of the 21st century. So from two, I started in 2000, finished off around 2011. Then I went back to see what happened. And part of that, the benefit of that hindsight is usually projects are evaluated when they finish. I had the, the privilege of sort of seeing what happened after a project had already been there for five or even 10 years in some circumstances. And so when I went back, in, in, let's look at it one at a time. So when I went back to Iraq, there were a number of years that had progressed in between. And I think one of the lessons that I learned from there was that the government and local organizations could have done what we had done with a little bit more time. It's highly educated society, already well-structured, strong infrastructure, and I'm not talking about physical infrastructure, I mean human capital infrastructure. And so in many instances, what the value we added was we were there first with some money. And you really have to ask yourself, is the value when you're looking at what we did, should it be measured on what we contributed and it lasted for the next you know, 10 years? Or is it the value that it added for the four months or five months, six months until the Iraqis themselves picked up the ball and did the same things themselves? So, for example, we repaired compact water treatment plants that were along the Euphrates River. This is very important for health, is that you have these water treatment plants, otherwise illnesses um, pervade the community. And so we did it, and we did it quickly. But the Department of Water and sanitation in those communities picked up the maintenance from where we were, in, in some cases, you know, only months after, and they could have done the repairs themselves. And so, you know, how much value did we really add? These are the sorts of questions. And another one was we helped repair the equipment and um, the sanitation facilities of a hospital immediately after there was a conflict that broke out in 2004 between the Medi Army and the U.S. soldiers, and we were the first in to quickly fix it up so the hospital could operate again. Now, it's not as if the Ministry of Health didn't have a budget of its own. There were billions of dollars was being poured into the Iraqi uh, administrative system. But the problem was that by the time the money found its way down to that hospital from the central government, not only would a lot of it have been pilfered, but it would have taken months. And so we were in there quickly. This, this is the sort of value that we added. But as far as long-term sustainability of the, of the type of work that I did, I'd say it was limited. But then again, the question that you would ask is, well, maybe that wasn't the purpose. Maybe the purpose was really to be there in there quickly. Now, in, in, in Sudan, it was different because although there was that conflict that I had discussed, it, it, was, it was at different stages. So in some, some aspects, what we were doing was more long-term sustainable development and other aspects, it was more emergency response. Looking at that long-term stuff, one of the issues, I'll give you an example, was we, I returned to a camp of the internal displaced that had existed since 1998. Now, I'd worked there in 2001 and I returned in 2011, I think it was. And so when I was there in 2001, it had been established for three years. The, the reason why it was there was because of famine and conflict in 1998. And I was already at that stage in 2001 telling the chiefs, the funding won't continue. You need to start looking at alternative options to go either back to your community or sustain yourselves in some other ways. This is not sustainable, supporting an internally displaced person's camp. And they gave me all of these excuses of why that wasn't possible. And then I came back 
and, and nevertheless continued. Um, and then I came back in 2011, and of course the camp was still there and, and the chiefs were still there. The difference was, though, they weren't looking after the camp. The latrines had covered over, the w water pumps were broken, the health clinic was run down, it wasn't stocked with materials. Basically, everything that we had done to wean, wean them off of the dependence upon us, so by training them, by providing supplies to them, by showing them how you can build latrines at no cost, basically. I mean, it, all it takes is dig a hole, get some logs, get some um, sacks from World Food Program when they have the food distribution, fill the sacks with dirt, put them on the logs, build a bamboo um, circular circumference thing around it to provide for privacy, and then you have a latrine. That's the most basic version of a latrine. Uh, now, it took me about half an hour of discussion with them to actually drill down and find out what the issue was. And it turned out the issue was that they didn't have tenure over the land. They didn't have ownership of that land. And so they didn't want to invest their time and resources in building it up and then for it only to be taken by the government, which was eyeing it because it was in prime position for development of the town. And so when you look at that, you say, well, okay, so... No one was able, we didn't foresee land tenure issues. What we had foreseen were, was very limited. And this then goes to the broader question, well, what are some of the challenges that we face in the aid industry? Um, and maybe what I'll do is I'll just respond to your earlier question was, what are the challenges more broadly that we face? And then I'll go to specifics. Um, the biggest challenge, humanitarian challenge at the moment is, is South Sudan, Yemen, Syria, the Lake Chad Basin, you know, a, few, a few others there. But you're looking at Yemen and Syria as being the overwhelming humanitarian challenges of, of probably of this decade. And I'm not confident that we're in a position to be able to respond to that. And in particular in Syria, the situation is that the, the United States has extracted it itself and the void that has been created has been filled by Iran, Turkey and Russia. Now, none of those three are involved in the international development consensus. So they're not big funders, they're not big contributors to personnel, they're not big contributors to the thought leadership, they're not big contributors to the ideas of what is the best way forward in international development. So with the US abdicating its role from Syria, what will happen is that a different type of development will take place in Syria. It won't be one that we're familiar with, which is one that's focused on a, working towards establishing a market economy, a liberal democracy, a rules-based system, recognition, a recognition of the rule of law, these sorts of things. This, this won't happen. What you will get instead is more of the sort of what's well known as the China model, uh, quid pro quo. Uh, we'll give you aid money to the central government in exchange for X, Y, and Z. And so you can imagine with I Iran or, or Russia or Turkey at the tiller when it comes to steering the, the way forward for how to distribute funds or prioritise projects, it's going to be a very different model. And some have said, a former Russian ambassador to Saudi Arabia has admitted that themselves. They said, you know, this is, we're going to do it in a very different way. And so this is a real threat to the international development consensus of the past, you know, since the, the end of the Cold War. So I think that's that's going to be one of the biggest biggest challenges that we're facing. It's not so much the nuts and bolts.
of the delivery of the aid, and, and I talk about the nuts and bolts in my book and some of the challenges, but this is more fundamental. This is, this is, we're talking about the biggest humanitarian challenge in the future, and I think what's going to happen is the European Union is going to fund a lot of it because they fear refugees, the floodgate of refugees into Europe. The Americans, Australians and Canadians are going to be shamed into giving money but the Iranians and Turks and the Russians are going to be controlling what's done. And that's going to be a, a big challenge. So talking to those people who, who want to take on that challenge, who want to get into the aid industry at the moment, what, I mean, your background's in engineering. What other types of work are there for those people and how, how best can they get into that field? Yeah, it's getting harder and harder. Um, at the moment, basically, you need a, a master's degree and some experience, volunteering experience. Some of the questions I ask people straight away, okay, what degree have you done? If you've done a practical degree, whether it's medicine, engineering, even law, public health, these sorts of things, then you can you can take a different stream. You can go directly as a technical specialist. And so that would be a little bit easier, less competition. There is a demand for those skills. If you can speak a language, it adds a lot of value, particularly languages of uh, former colonies that didn't do so well. So, for example, the, the French were pretty bad as, as colonialists and a lot of the problems in West Africa arise because of that. And so, you know, if you can speak French, you can go to those areas. Portuguese, not so helpful, though parts of Southwest Africa in, in need. And, you know, if you can speak Arabic, that's great. If you can speak Spanish, it's a little bit problematic because a lot of Americans can speak Spanish, so you're competing along that. So language is important. The right language is, is key. Some experience, and I don't necessarily mean volunteering in an orphanage. I don't think that cuts it. You need to have experience on the ground with an aid organisation. And so what I would suggest to people is, uh, for example, a lot of Australians went to East Timor on their own bat, basically. They, they paid for their, their way, got there, paid for some accommodation and door-knocked aid agencies to see if they can volunteer. And, and um, aid agencies like that because then they don't need to pay for the airfare, insurance and, and possibly a mistake of getting someone who can't deal with the limited amount of food or limit, limited amount of hot water. So if you can get that volunteering experience, speak a language and you've got some sort of skill set, that's the perfect trio trifecta if you haven't got one it'll be a little bit harder um, but you know keep in mind you're not limited to um, having to go overseas you can volunteer online build up a skill set there are um, UN volunteers has an online volunteering system um, where you're where different skill sets can contribute you can write proposals edit grant applications presumably as an architect you can contribute to town planning or these sorts of things so there are different ways that you can develop these sorts of skill sets um, what I always recommend people do is look up um, relief web www.reliefweb.int I believe it is but I'm not sure just look up that that's where all the jobs are posted um, that's where you go uh, and uh, familiarise yourself with the different agencies and what their requirements are. And what would you say to those same people, to the, to the person listening who, who wants to get into the aid industry and work in humanitarian crises around the world? I, look, I, I would say it was one of the best decisions I made. It's a difficult um, career choice because you're sacrificing, you know, for a long period of time, not only 
creature comforts but um, relationships because the nature of humanitarian relief is that you go where the money is and the money usually only lasts as long as the media spotlight lasts and so that's limiting. It's a, a few years at the max um, in, in a particular crisis before the next crisis happens and then you're required to go somewhere else. And so it can be tough. You need to be fully aware of all of these challenges. You need to know what your uh, limitation limits are can you operate in an environment where there isn't any running water or hot water or electricity or can you operate in an environment where your life is at risk these are the sorts of questions that you need to be able to ask yourself and have answered before you put in those applications because the last thing you want to do is get over to some place and then realize it's it's not for you I'm sure a lot of people wanted me to get more into all the different stories you have throughout Sudan, East Timor and Iraq, but you have fortunately written a book on that, No Dancing, No Dancing. So can you let us know where our listeners can find that? Sure. So the full title is No Dancing, No Dancing Inside the Global Humanitarian Crisis. You can get it online, um, Amazon, all the basically versions of um, electronic publications. Get it in bookstores. I, I just went to readings in Carlton. They've got it there. I haven't been to other bookstores, presumably also. You can get a hard copy or e-format. So just search online and, and I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Excellent. And where can everybody find you online? Um, I'm at www.denisdragovich.com. I'm not on Twitter and I refuse to be. Uh, or you can follow me on Facebook or you can follow my Facebook page, which is uh, No Dancing, No Dancing. Also, you can look it up that way. Excellent. Dennis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter and SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Please don't forget to subscribe, like and share us with your friends and follow us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. So you never miss an episode. We'll be out every Thursday night. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AAAA Victoria's website. It's www.internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria, where you can sign on to become a member and get discounted events and access to our academic journals, as well as the upcoming speaking events at Dyson House which are free for students, by the way. We have a few live talks coming up at Dyson House in East Melbourne, one focusing on the Inter-Korean Summit and another discussing the East Timor Sea Disputes. Up next on the podcast, we have ABC Middle East correspondent Matt Brown, a four-time Walkley Award winner with a wealth of experience reporting from the front line in places like Iraq and Syria. I can't wait for this one. So thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Bateman. Until next time.